I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. You're listening to a special five-part series commissioned by Flag Art Foundation for their exhibition, The Times. The exhibition uses the New York Times as its point of departure and features over 80 artists, artist duos, and collectives who use the paper record to address and reframe issues that impact our everyday lives. I wanted to come at this from a completely different angle than producing an object for the space. As a sculptor, I felt like I needed to give something, but really... As an artist, I felt like I needed to create a starting place for you to come in and enrich the viewing experience for everybody involved. For me, that was talking to the people who actually work within the walls of the New York Times. So, in the next five interviews, I speak to editors and writers who work in different departments of the New York Times. We talk about why they do their jobs, how they do their jobs, and what it means to be a part of this institution that everybody knows about. The list of individuals that are included in this are Michael Owen, Rick Rojas, David Coleman, Andrea Canapel, and Randy Kennedy. I have to take the time also to thank all the people involved who helped me get these interviews because it wasn't easy and thank the Flag Art Foundation for allowing me to contribute to this great exhibition. So without further ado, here we go. just took a mint out of your mouth so I did a therabreath mint thank you for speaking with me on the show but I should say this is the second time we've done it yes I you know but the second time's a charm you know you always do things better the second time around I'm gonna hope so definitely back in the days when you used to uh, occasionally lose an entire story which was maddening from Uh, a recording or what no 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 from a computer like you would if your computer yeah. crashed, sometimes you would lose the yeah. whole story. Yeah. I have to start over from the beginning. And, oh, um, typing it. You always typed it better the second time. Did you really? Oh, yeah. No question. Let's talk about why we're having this conversation. Okay. You were a contributing writer to the Times yep. in the style section. Correct. For many years. 21 years. You are also an artist who happens to be in the flag show. Yes. So it's a dual role here. And really... When we were speaking the other day, it really was apparent to me how much our own works had in common, and at least our relationship, maybe not the end result of what was coming out, but our relationship to the object yeah, and our understanding of what the object is. And one of the things that was really interesting, and we didn't get into it until later in the conversation, but I want to address it now here in the beginning, because I think it's relevant to talk about either of these things. Uh, Your writing and your art cannot be separated from each other. No. When you start looking at them. So can we, let's talk a bit about, let's talk a bit about your writing first, I guess. Sure. Both writing and uh, the form of art making that kind of came to accompany and shadow my writing, which is kind of research and collecting and searching and finding and buying and collecting. They're both things that trace back to my childhood, and they both are functions of, you know, slightly, almost pathological level of curiosity that I have. I really could get interested in really anything. 
sad, really. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, you know, what I enjoyed most and why I ended up writing the things that I did were they just involved so many rabbit holes, so many wormholes, so many, you know, Wikipedia pages, so many, so much research, so many reference books. There's no subject that I ever felt like I found too boring. Like as a kid? As a kid, I, it's funny, I always joked that I was raised by a set of encyclopedias. Um, abandoned in the wild and, and raised by a set of encyclopedias. What, but, what did your parents do? Uh, my father was a real estate developer. My mom was a financial analyst. So, but they were... Oh, they were very much present, sure. As a kid, I always had my nose in a book, and I loved the encyclopedia. You know, I would read the dictionary for pleasure. I mean, I'm just an, <laughs> one of those weird people. I know way too much... Random information. Random, or... Uh, people say random, people say useless. <laughs> I think that's an extremely unkind way to uh, describe any information, but there it is. Yes, I do have an appalling amount of random useless information in my head. Well, it leads me into thinking, I mean, you're, you're talking about collecting this information, but when we spoke before as well, you talked about collecting objects to the point of sort of it being an issue for you. Not even sort of. I mean, it really, my collecting, you know, it's funny. I discovered, I started writing for the New York Times in 1996, and I would say that I discovered eBay in 1997. And these two websites, among several others, like Wikipedia, have, have ruled my life to a great degree in the last couple of decades. What was this, this time frame then, basically, where, because you didn't always make art. Right. I... I didn't, I mean, I studied art when I was, uh, studio art when I was in school, uh, in college, and I thought about becoming an artist, but I think I sort of decided to become a writer because that seemed the more practical like idea. Living. You could make a living. I could make a living, and I enjoyed it, and it was, uh, to a certain degree, easy for me, but it, it definitely left this part of me looking for an outlet that was satisfied, as it always had been, in collecting things and looking for things and kind of building my little kind of psychotic collection of well, odds and ends. What's interesting is all these things that you've been collecting over the years actually get turned into the art now. So how many years ago was it that you started making? So in 2010, you know, when the, uh, the media world was sort of sliding into a, um, the icy waters of the North Atlantic, shall we say, <laughs> um, I started to really think about my career choices and my life choices. One of the things that I had to reckon with when I looked around my apartment at just kind of all the stuff that I'd collected and I thought I had a real, um, a moment of, of real shame and uh, self-hatred and thinking, you know, what have you done with all this stuff? And, you know, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life, A, which is too big a question, right? But then I thought, you know, looked around and what had I built? You know, I'd, I'd had this writing career that was, by the standards of another time, perfectly successful, but by the standards of the 21st century, didn't amount to much, really, in the right. end. And what I had I built was this kind of collection of, I don't know what to call it. I didn't know what to call it. Uh, my hoard. The truth is, I painted my apartment. 
I painted my apartment as some sort of form of catharsis. Like therapy. Therapy. But what happened was when I was, I didn't move out of my apartment. I decided to, you know, I just moved everything You had to around. rearrange. Yeah. I had to rearrange everything as, it, as I moved from room to room. And what I started seeing with all this stuff that I was hating myself for having collected, I started seeing these interesting assemblages that were chants sort of wonderful in this funny way because they just I don't know what the word is because they were they were these random assemblages of things but they were all of things that had a certain meaning and a certain sensibility you know they were as if I had collected words these were these kind of weird poems that um that had just were kind of piled up all over the place and I started to really love them and so instead of trying to put anything back in some sort of kind of, quote, domestic order, right. you know, the sort of uh, tablescapes that I had had before, I thought, well, I'm just going to put things back in this new idea. And that was the start of these assemblages, yeah. And that, and that I really liked it. And then I thought, well, I'm going to make wallscapes out of these. I'm not even going to rest by putting things on tables anymore. I mean, I really had one of those eureka moments that we all hear about and that we never believe, <laughs> uh, where I just thought, you know, this is... This is what I should be doing. This is what I should be doing, but also this was my art form all along, yeah. you know. Um, what have I been missing out on, maybe, all this time? <laughs> well, not so much, because I was participating, but yeah, to a certain extent, I was like, oh, this... It, I was doing it the whole time, you know. Right. I mean, there's lots of wonderful moments like that where you're like, oh, you know, like in the Murder on the Orient Express, it's like, oh, they all did it. You know, like, <laughs> oh. You know, there's just like a wonderful relief and release in that kind of, oh, and it all makes sense this whole time. It was right in front of my face. How many years do you say that's been there? That was in 2010. I mean, it was, I could practically, you know, name it to the day. It was like in February of 2010. Really? Yeah. And yeah, and I still remember somebody coming over and an art critic friend who happened to drop by my apartment and I didn't want him to come in and he kind of shoved his way in shoved his way, his way in <laughs> for no reason and he saw this stuff and he I still remember vividly him standing there saying, Oh my god, you're an artist and these are brilliant. Yeah, it was it's pretty wonderful. It was pretty wonderful. Uh, and, you know, so that was an extraordinarily auspicious beginning that I would say other people have been a little bit more skeptical, but <laughs> especially because this is, this involves nothing more than shopping and styling, you might argue. But I argue that styling is the actual, like people think of the caves at Lascaux as representing the first creative effort, but I think styling is more basic than so painting. let's talk about that because that goes back into your writing as well too. You speak about styling and writing, but I, I wanted to get into this. You have a word for, so. I do, but I'm, it's always, it's, it's something that I don't talk about that much because it's a lot for people to handle, so I tend to not bring it up. Do you want to speak about it? Sure, no, 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 I love yeah. talking about it. Around that same time in 2017, one of the corollaries to my own perplexity at my own personal hoard was also my perplexity at humanity's hoard of stuff, of material possessions, which Society. I had, yeah, uh, you know, but civilization, 
are a huge stockpile of stuff that was, quote, needless. Writing for the style section, which is really the want section of the times and not the need section of the times, right. you get extremely kind of humorously aware at the extremely subjective nature of the terms need and want. Do you need a new pair of Prada shoes? Do you want a new pair of Prada shoes? Which is it? It's really hard to separate those things out, and yet we do very defiantly do that. We separate not only areas of our own lives, but areas of the newspaper into separate sections that are labeled with different degrees of reality, if you will, or meaning or realness. You know, the front page is, of course, the real news the, that you have to know about, and then... Prescribed real news, right? Yes, the prescribed real news. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not my, those are, these are not my terms. Writing for the style section, you become aware of how important this quote-unquote superficial stuff really is to people. It's not just owning. Participating. It's participating and, and knowing about it, you know, and being informed and wanting is still part of participating in it, even if you're not getting it. Over the years, I just, you can't help but notice a very puzzling incongruity that people are a lot more interested in what we consider superficial things than they are in the things that they are supposed to find real. I mean, we even have behaviors that we think of as, as superficial, like being judgmental. And yet you think, well, but people are judgmental and people don't live in the So present. where do you, obviously you don't agree with that completely. So how I do you do not, yes. So how do you form, what, what's the alternative? I'm not sure that there is a better way to be. I think that we will always keep looking for a better way, but I don't think we will find it because I think we are inherently dissatisfied and unsatisfiable. That is part of our nature. But That's why the pursuit of happiness is actually more important than happiness. Why you're always chasing. Yes. And why once you find something, you chase again sometimes. Yes, after you get what you want, you don't want it. It sounds better when Marilyn Monroe sings it, but <laughs> it's nonetheless true. So this leads us into the word we were talking about. Right. Cultiplicity. There you go. And this came about as having thought about these subjects and not finding our pat answers to them terribly convincing for years and thinking, you know, all this stuff, why do we care? Why do we want all this stuff? Why do we watch so much TV and movies and clothes and computers and this and that and everything? It's not because, if it's because we're bad, <laughs> then our whole species is bad. You know, it's, it's right. so if it's bad, Yes. We've been doing it for how many years and we keep yeah. repeating the same thing. Yeah, exactly. If it's bad, then we're all bad and there's no sign of stopping. Right. You know, what if it's not bad? What if it's just... What if it just is? Right. What if that is who we are? What if that is our nature? And what if you need that? And what if you need all of it? Right. It's, it's funny because the, my realization about this goes back to the New York Times, my own participation in the crossword puzzle, which is something that I did for so long just as a pastime. And it goes to this word that is very often used in the crossword puzzle. It's known as a repeater. They're words usually very vowel heavy that end up in the crossword puzzle quite a bit because they're useful. 
This word is agar, A-G-A-R. It is a substance derived from seaweed that is a, can be in a powder or gel form. And by the way, it has become a new ingredient in the, in the new molecular gastronomy because it also is a, as a thickener, it's actually quite useful. But classically speaking, it is used by laboratories to grow bacteria in Petri dishes. Now, in the New York Times crossword puzzle, on Monday, that's the easiest day. It's almost, you know, kind of beneath your dignity to do the Monday puzzle. <laughs> do you almost set it aside? You almost do. And I remember I was on the board of uh, this organization once, and I was waiting for the, the meeting to start. And so I was doing the Monday crossword puzzle, and this very dry, very funny woman across the table said, Oh, David. Monday? <laughs> and I had to laugh. But so Monday is the easiest and it gets harder all of the through the week until Saturday, which I don't think I ever finished. And uh, Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah. Saturday's hard. It's harder than Sunday. The really? Sunday magazine yeah, one. Yeah. The magazine one is very different. It's got a whole different, it's like a different animal. On Monday, Easy day, it would say the clue would be seaweed gel. And you'd say, ah, oh, agar. But as the week went on, because it is a repeater and a frequently used word, the clue would get harder and harder and harder. On a Wednesday, for example, it might, clue might be medium. And you'd think, oh, a medium, is that a size? Is that a seer, like a clairvoyant? Is it a, and then you know you get a, the A or the G and you think, ah, oh, it's agar because it's a medium to grow bacteria in. Maybe Friday, the clue might be culture. And you know, you're thinking arts, you're thinking aria, you're thinking anything. Anything but. Anything but <laughs> agar. And you're like, ah, agar because it is what you use to culture a bacteria in a petri right. dish. The various many moods of agar became well known to me by the time that I was a fairly decent crossword puzzle enthusiast. And I remember right around the same time that I was having this, my own kind of crisis of, you know, personal aesthetics and philosophy, I remember I was standing on a corner of Broadway and Vesey Street in Lower Manhattan, and it just hit me. Your epiphany. Like my epiphany, which was, it's all agar. All the stuff, all the ideas, all of civilization, really, but specifically all the physical stuff and the meanings that we attach to all of it. What if it is agar? What if it is actually we need it in order to survive as a species? And we need, also need it to spread. And without it, we can't. So in, in terms of it has many definitions, it can be a variable to lead to other things? How, how in what way? It, well, I'm thinking in terms of the crossword puzzle. So it leads... Oh, right, yes. So in the crossword puzzle, did you, were you thinking it in that sense, or were you thinking it in the literal sense of what the object was? I was thinking of it in sense, no, in the sense of the way culture, and I use that term very broadly, functions for people and why on earth we would need so much of it. Why do we need it at all? Right. I mean, theoretically, you know, we have this idea of ourselves as kind of reasoning and independent, fiercely independent species. You know, we're not these 
animals that, you know, don't reason. And, right. you know, we, we pride ourselves on reasoning and our, our, you know, kind of no-nonsense attitude about things, which uh, both of those things seem quite delusional. I think that we do have the ability to reason, but I'm not sure that we use it as often as people like to think. Well, I think what's interesting about this, too, is when you describe somebody or you talk about somebody, you're not talking about the aspects like reasoning or it's usually the social aspects, the, sure. the, the pieces of that puzzle that are sort of hard to pinpoint why they exist or what they are, but that's what makes people individual. No question. And I mean, it's interesting because we talk about this stuff all the time, but we have no vocabulary for it. And this is something I think is so interesting because... It's very abstract. It is abstract, and yet it's not abstract because we're very definite about it. Well, you used to write about it, right? Or do write about it. I do. So I can see how this fits into how you think about your writing because you wrote, wrote, write for the style section. How does it fit into your work, artwork? What I discovered around the same time that I felt like, oh, this is all culture and it is extremely important, that we have to have it and, it, and we can't survive without it. Need and want are immaterial, are sort of immaterial because you'll just expand to however much of it you can. You'll justify whatever you need to. Yeah, justify. you will justify every. So they're, they're kind of they're they're misleading concepts. So they're not useful in this discussion. Right. And so I went back to my own apartment, that you know my stuff crammed apartment, and thought, oh, you know this is a culture. This is my culture. You know one of the animals that I'd always been so obsessed with is the, the octopus, which is a mollusk. And I've always been very impressed with mollusks, who I always say were nature's first architects, because they built their own houses, right? Yeah. They make those beautiful shells. But they can exist without them. They are divisible from them. Right. And then, you know, then you have hermit crabs, which are nature's first home flippers. <laughs> Because they just move in and then move out. But, so, but the octopus also is nature's first decorator because they will create a little environment for themselves that is secure and also you know, serves as kind of camouflage. And we have this term, I don't, it's not used that often, but an octopus garden. And it's, what it is, it's an environment. And that's what a culture is. It's a mental and mental mental and physical environment for yourself you just every person a, builds. You just made up another new word. Um, yes. <laughs> well, I know, a mental. <laughs> and I felt like, so this is what we are doing in a lot of our lives that we don't think about. We are creating and trying to grow this environment. Right. Every other animal, almost, on Earth, one of the central conditions for their survival is that they have a hospitable habitat, a cradle for civilization, a matrix that allows them to survive. And this is why habitat destruction is such a huge problem in the animal kingdom because animals are, cannot adapt so you think, to move a kilometer. So you think this social, this cultural thing we build is us building a habitat Correct. for ourselves to survive? Yes. To survive and flourish, i.e. Right. to grow. Yeah, interesting. Our species kind of moved away from South East Africa, however many years it was ago. There's a lot of um, debate about that. But one of the things that has allowed us and enabled us to spread was that we said we don't need a natural habitat. 
we will make our own. Nomadic, right. Yes, well not just nomad because you know a nomad can just move around and take it with them. But it also means that you will make one wherever you go if you want to stay, but you will continue to make one even when there's one there. You will still make it yours, Right. make it your own. If we were strictly reason-based, you'd be like, oh great, look at this perfectly furnished house. I don't have to change a thing. But nobody has ever done that. <laughs> nobody goes into a house and says, this is fine exactly the way it is. There are people who do that, and we consider them weird. Right, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Right, That's yes. just off. That's just off. It's like, what do you mean? You yeah. know, it's like why yeah. hotel rooms are always just a little strange to us because it's not we it's have hard to get comfortable not, without building your own yes without garden exactly your own octopus garden i call it i call it an auto matrix because it's a matrix that you make that makes you and cultiplicity is this word i came up with to describe this because cultiplicating is something that we all do it comes from cultivate i.e to kind of create something that is yours and is a place that can you cultivate and that cultivates you. But it's important to note that growth is something that is inherent in human nature. And we, always, we all want to spread. We all want to spread. I don't care who you are. It's not just some horrible, again, it's, it's like it's part of who, who we are. It's part of every species has a matrix, has a part of its equation is the design to spread something. And if you don't have that, you're not going to be on Earth for very long. Right. So that's why multiplicate or replicate is part of this, cultiplicity or cultiplicate. And you always are trying to push it a little. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's definitely what I'm trying to do with my art is to take something that in a weird way, I was only cultivating and now I'm cultiplicating because it's, I'm taking something that was extremely private and trying to make it public. And it is very much my culture. I don't even put, I try not to put too much thought into it because I find that the more kind of unconscious I am, the more authentic right. an expression it and is. You, and you can that. read it when it's not authentic. Yeah, it feels fake and forced and like gimmicky. Or, I feel yeah. that way with my, my own work as well. Too. Yes. So as a writer, I noticed one of the things that you do in, in your pieces are a majority of these pieces were profile pieces. Yeah. Which I love. Well, <laughs> thank it you. Was, I love doing them. You didn't, when you talk about the style section and what you were talking about here too was talking about in terms of an object or or people needed and wanting things. Really, your writing didn't come off to me in that way. It came off as a, and I said this the other day to you, you built like this world where you could see what the person was sort of living in and who they were. But after you tell the story about, or, or about your thinking about your work and everything too, it makes sense now. Because you're doing the same thing in your writing that you're doing in your work. Well, and I mean, definitely the, I don't think I ever would have come up with this idea about humanity if I hadn't done all those profiles and seen how much objects and aesthetics really mean to people. And it's not something anybody ever talks about because it's not considered 
you know, it's not considered deep or profound or good even to actually. And, and some people that I would, uh, would talk to, uh, the columns I wrote would say, ah, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not really a thing person. And I was always like, after, after doing this for 10 years, let me just tell you something. There is nobody on earth that is not a thing person. <laughs> and... You know, so I would say sometimes, does that mean I can just come over to your house and start throwing things out the window and you won't stop me I at any point? Something. Yeah. And that was usually interpreted as a, a little hostile. And so that was <laughs> usually the end of the conversation. But, uh, but, you know, I think made my point. But one thing that I found interesting about that was it was a wonderful way to profile somebody is to ask them, ask them about the things they love. Because when somebody is talking about something they love, they're talking about what they love about themselves and what they oh, value yeah. and what's important to them. Yeah. And it's actually a really intimate thing. But they don't know they're doing it. They don't know they're doing it. and Which is why it comes off as honest. Yes. And it's wonderful because they would never say those things about themselves. Right. It would seem vain or shallow did you or do boastful. This, did you do this during your interviews to get the, like, when, when do you do this with friends? What do you, when you talk and you go to meet somebody and you ask them about their objects, are you asking your people you're profiling for the time? Yeah. So it gives you insight into how to sort of write a story or tell a story about them a little bit. Yes, exactly. Well, I specifically, you know, I wrote a column that's probably uh, roughly about half the stories I've written for the Times were this one column that was weekly for, I think, seven or eight years and then bi-weekly for a couple years more. That was where people talked about an object that they had. Really? But they always came off as profiles because that's how I ended up. Yeah, that's, that's, how, right. that's what makes them interesting. Yeah, that's so, how you write, too. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely how I write. You know, we think of ourselves as these objects, as these these things, these flesh and bone things, you know, with feelings, and that that's the end of who we are. And it's like, if you think of yourself as a verb that is actually like creating, like doing something, it makes more sense. Right. It describes who we are a lot better to say that like we are an action rather than a being. David, thank you so much for being a part of uh, the project. And I really enjoy the work and congratulations well, thank on you. the flagship. Well, thank you so much. It's an exciting show to be part of, for sure. Thank you.